sure what's wrong anyway before we get into our conversation with our guest of the week i want to share with you guys my favorite thing of the moment and my favorite thing right now sunday riley's vitamin c serum and i don't know why i haven't made this my weekly weakness sooner seeing as i've gone through three bottles of it already but it's like bomb it's a staple in my like skincare routine now. If I get lazy and I don't want to do the full skincare routine, I usually just wash my face and do eye cream and a serum. It is so good. Oh my god. Smells great. Um, I'm pretty sure it helps with like dark spots and stuff like that too. But I don't know. I feel like after a certain age, you definitely need to invest in a good vitamin C serum and eye cream. I've been using eye cream since I was like 18. Before we get into the interview portion of the show, um, and it's a really good episode for you guys, by the way, I just want to remind you that you can purchase my eight-week workout program, Vibing Strong. You can purchase my goodie bag, which is a set of pink booty bands and core sliders. I take this shit every single place with me. If I am out of town, I take it with me because I am that weirdo who like works out on vacation. I think it like keeps me so sane and i can also just eat and drink usually whatever i want on vacation and not really worry too much about it if i stick to my usual workout routine so i know that's probably kind of like off kilter considering the fact that (laughs) we're in a pandemic and nobody can travel really but you know i'm just saying so if you're doing a staycation whatever You guys can do all that and book a one-hour consult with me. You guys can talk to me about anything you want um, for an hour. It used to be limited to just like nutrition and fitness and diet-related things, but I have started to get a lot of DMs from you guys on my Instagram page asking for like friendship advice, love advice, general life stuff. So I've opened it up to any and all topics that you want my advice on. And I promise I give some really good fucking advice, okay? At the moment, females only. I've gotten a lot of weird, (laughs) creepy little offers on there from guys. So I'm sorry, females only for a little girl chat session for an hour. Okay, all done with my spiel. Let's get right into my conversation this week with our guest. That was weird. Let's get into our conversation with the guest of the week. There you go. Our guest this week is completely fascinating. She is a dominatrix. She is a practitioner of transformational domination. And she is also a co-founder of La Maison de Rouge with Lucy Sweetkill. Dia Dynasty, welcome to Vibing in Valentino. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from? All the basics. I am a first-generation Chinese-American. I was born in upstate New York, and I currently live in New York City, so I am kind of home. Okay. (laughs) Um, But I've lived kind of all over the U.S. I've lived in the Midwest. uh, I lived in Texas for uh, most of my life. Mm Mm-hmm. And I also lived in Taiwan for the very beginnings of my life. And so Chinese is, Mandarin Chinese is actually my first language. I was raised by my grandmother, a very strong woman who endured a lot of uh, wartime trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was born in the 70s. I'm 43 years old. Cisgendered, hetero, flexible, queer woman (laughs) and i'm not really sure what else um is basic okay (laughs) i mean the reason i have you on here is because you are not basic so (laughs) let's get right into it how did this journey begin for you journey is i think a really broad word so i'm gonna i'm gonna specify this as a kink journey okay um or a you know maybe even a sexual journey Mm um i i i I kind of have always been intrigued by 
um, sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, being an only child and relatively precocious, uh, I always kind of tuned into things that seemed like they were about sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was nothing, you know, like in my childhood and in my formative years, there was just me and my mom and yeah. there was, you know, like no other. Right. <laughs> so, so that caused a void um, where I was always kind of like looking, but there was nothing to see. And so once I got to be of age to work at any sort of like adult oriented place, uh-huh. um, I, I got a job at a strip club in Houston, Texas. Right. And this was the beginning of the journey um, of kind of like discovering what other people do in terms of like sex and sexuality and sex work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so working at strip clubs, you know, I, I worked at a couple of them first as a cocktail waitress and then as a dancer in Texas. It was pretty unfulfilling. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I kind of was a witness to the idea of sisterhood within these places. Yeah. And, and also these, these very kind of like limited transactional interactions that could have the potential to become more, but because of the limitations of like uh, strip clubs, they seldom became anything more than just what happened at the strip clubs. Mm. And then I decided, you know, that that wasn't enough for me and I didn't really, the strip club scene wasn't really my thing. And it came time to kind of like move to a different place where I could learn more and explore more. So moved to New York City, still didn't know anything about BDSM or or kink in mm-hmm. in its like more formal vocabulary. Yeah. So I actually worked at a strip club um in New York City <laughs> for uh maybe like three days. Yeah. <laughs> really? And, and found <laughs> yes, yes. And and I found the bureaucracy of it to be like so oppressing and exploitative. Is it different than the um, one in Houston? Very much so because because New York is just like there's so much more money here. Everything is like more high stakes yeah. and high dollar. And so at the strip club, you know, like once you walk in, like first of all, you have to get hired, um, which isn't always a guarantee. Right. And then and then the first day that you show up just to work, you just by walking in the door, you already owe like five hundred dollars. Wow. <laughs> so you yes. So you need to hustle hard because there are hundreds of people there and they're all more beautiful than you, you know, like they're all tall Mm -hmm. and they're fully, you know, they've got their makeup and their hair and their beaded gown Mm -hmm. and their, you know, their, their expensive shoes and they already know the hustle and they've already got their clients. And then there's the champagne room, which was like, oh, that's where everything happens. Mm. So that... Yeah, that was a side of sex work that, you know, I learned pretty quickly was also not my thing. You know, I, yeah. I'm, I, I'm not secure enough to to basically be an escort. And I know that that's my own limitation. But um, through that channel of sex work in the strip club, I was able to um, meet a fellow stripper and investors Mm -hmm. in in the whole strip club and actually have a session with him and this was before i learned about all the safety and techniques of proper consensual (laughs) safe sane risk aware bdsm Uh so so that was kind of like the first peephole into that life and that work and then and then i realized wow this is this is more along the lines of what I want to do. Like this like perversion of, you know, of like what seemed more mainstream. Mm -hmm. So I looked online and I looked on Craigslist. I was like, you know, what, what can I do next? What, what would be more along the lines of, of this kind of thing that I've had a peep into. Um, And I found a listing on Craigslist that said, you know, hiring, no experience needed, um, all Asian what? You know, fetish fetish dungeon in Chinatown um, will provide full fetish wardrobe and you know flexible hours and I was like okay yes absolutely checked off all the boxes and then some 
so I went into to this little place, went up this like scary little elevator into this tiny little room with a cage uh, with like very harsh overhead lighting. It felt like, you know, my nerves were just on edge and I was stepping into something that so completely unknown that I was sweating, you know, and I, and, and then walked into this dark hallway and was greeted by uh, this very bubbly Asian woman with anime (laughs) proportions. Um, And, and we talked about, you know, what this place was and it was, it was a, it was basically a, a fetish playground um, some people called it a dungeon. Some people called it, you know, like like a play space. Mm-hmm. And and what they would provide me as just kind of this like completely green newbie um, was flexible hours, uh, the opportunity to to play with people in a way that was sexualized but wasn't about sex with my body. Mm-hmm. Um, a full fetish wardrobe, which like I didn't even know what that meant, but it was, you know, latex and like mini skirts and high heels and mm-hmm. and all kinds of like all kinds of fun costumes, yeah. which I loved, and um, and flexible hours, so like being on call, and and that is the beginning of my journey. It was this like really like posh and padded little playground where I can, where I can just like explore all kinds of, you know, alternative sexualities out there that didn't have to center on, you know, traditional P and V sex. Wait, hold on. Now it's starting to, I'm starting to get the impression that you don't actually sleep with the person. Oh no. No, I don't ever have, um, penetrative sex with my body. Really? Really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, I mean, there are people out there who call themselves kinky companions uh-huh. who are more, you know, they they do the the traditional kind of like escort stuff along with the kink stuff. Yeah. Um, but as a dominatrix or a pro dom, you know, we um, normally don't. I'm sure there are some that that do, okay. uh, and and there are some that probably like uh, have an upgraded service option, maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Got it. Okay. 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 Well, you know, so many of us, me included, we got our first introduction into this BDSM world, this dominant, submissive dynamic through Hollywood, like movies, like Fifty Shades and Three Hundred Sixty Five Days on Netflix and it feels comparable to like I told you in our pre-meeting like learning about magic from watching Harry Potter movies like it's just so <laughs> like it is not it so yeah what do you see the media get wrong about BDSM and what do you want people to understand more about it several things about um the way that media portrays BDSM I think are um, sensationalized, but also reductive. And so what I mean by sensationalized is that you see all the juicy stuff mm-hmm. and, and you see BDSM being kind of like portrayed as just these juicy kind of like extreme things, like, like the pain and the bondage and yeah. the, and you know, like, like the drama of yeah. BDSM. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's very much, how Harry Potter portrays magic right. is very dramatic and, and like, you know, all, all this stuff going on that, that you have to kind of like multitask. Um, but what Harry Potter does get right about magic is the learning part. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the kind of stuff that you don't always see in Hollywood is the kind of like, um, the, the com the communications, the negotiations, the, the the learning of how to do these things properly right, right. Um, and and what I will liken to a glass dome is that like um, I call this the glass dome so what you see inside the glass dome as a spectator is all the again the the sensational the whips and the chains and the leather and the, yeah you know the the hot stuff but what's outside of the glass dome is all the stuff that it goes into preparing for that scene because what you're seeing is a scene and then all the stuff that comes after the scene like the aftercare 
and the check-ins and and the actual relationship that the scene is built on mm-hmm. so so there's a lot of trust there's a, again a lot of communication a lot of negotiation whether you're a professional dominant having a scene with a client or you're a lifestyle um in a lifestyle relationship with, mm-hmm. where one person plays the dominant and the other person plays the submissive mm-hmm. and whether that extends beyond the scene or not is up to them of course but um there's a there's a lot of there's a lot a lot a lot of communication and negotiation and that leads to consent and so that's another thing that i'm not really sure is properly portrayed in um in hollywood is the this whole process of reaching consent yeah um, yeah, because we don't want to yeah. unconsensually do anything to to somebody who's our bottom, because that is considered abuse, right. and BDSM is absolutely not abuse. Okay, like you know, if if I saw somebody who was like completely submissive, I would be like, oh my god, like I wonder if she's like getting you know abused at home or something like that as well. If it's not being done correctly, so correct, yeah, yeah. Let's um, talk about that. Let's talk about consent. So consent is kind of this. It's this invisible line that a lot of people don't see in in kink and BDSM scenes. So when you're watching like pornography or um, I'm sorry, when you're watching like kink pornography or really mm-hmm. any pornography, you don't see what goes on behind the scenes, which is the negotiation part. Yeah. And this is, you know, pretty specific to like sexual scenes, but can also apply to life in general. Right. So, um, so when you when you want to do something as a dominant or when the submissive is looking for a specific kind of feeling that they want to feel from the dominant, um, there needs to be communication about it. So asking, for example, if you're dominant and you have a submissive that you want to play with, are you open to uh, having marks from impact play? let's say yeah um because maybe the dominant is very sadistic and wants to you know like wants to give pain yeah and and if the submissive is okay with that um then they would say of course you know i would love that because maybe maybe the submissive is also a masochist so you have a perfect pair a a sadist and a masochist right but sometimes the submissive is looking for a different feeling and so the negotiation process of reaching consent could be something like you know, dominant says, are you okay with having marks on your body and receiving pain from impact play? You know, very specific, Mm -hmm. very communicative, very informative. And the submissive says, no, I would not like any marks from my body from on my body from impact play because I don't like that kind of pain. But if you tie me up in a way where I can't escape and then you give me pain in a way that doesn't leave marks, I will take the pain for you. Mm. So there's, you know, like, just because the dominant is in this top role and the submissive is in this bottom role, it doesn't mean that the submissive doesn't, it has to take whatever is given. They have complete power of negotiation as well. Yeah. So all of these kind of conversations need to happen in order to set up a scene. Mm-hmm. And and so, of course, that's specific to, you know, uh, a BDSM scene. But in more generalized life, um, you know, it's like, it's like when you go to a restaurant and you <laughs> say, I would like to order, you know, the spaghetti, but can yeah. you make it vegan? Yeah. And, <laughs> and, the, and then there's a negotiation process between you and the waiter right. for what the, what the food is going to look like. Right. Um, and you're consenting to like, you know, like whatever the waiter says, no, we can't make it vegan, but we could take out the meatballs, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <that kind> of- <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think like the, the aspect of, um, consent that a lot of people are kind of like uh, not so sure about talking about mm-hmm. is the the communication and a lot of people think that the communication will will make it like not sexy yeah or like will, it loses will, like, the fantasy yeah it loses the fantasy or it or it takes away from the moment of spontaneity where you're supposed to like follow these Hollywood yeah. scenes of like just like <laughs> two animals coming together or ripping each other's clothes off. It's yeah. the most amazing orgasm, you know? Yeah. Like, that is not real life. <laughs> that, 
that is so not real life. That is obviously yeah. a Hollywood portrayal of a hot sex scene, which is great. Like, but be able to distinguish that that is Hollywood mm -hmm. and that real life requires a lot more conversation and communication and that that communication is is like mental you know like yeah. like it's um happening in the mind and, and of the brain and so believe it or not your your mind is your most powerful sex organ and so when you can activate the mind when you can get these words to trigger like arousal then you have foreplay and that is what the communication is more about than destroying the spontaneity or ruining the moment yeah that communication is like actually what what gets things going you know for yeah. people who need a little more for people who need a little more yeah and i feel like this is an important part of the entire practice is the mental aspect of it um which brings me to uh your way of practicing transformational domination can you tell us a little bit more about that and kind of this this way of practice yes um so bdsm is absolutely very psychological and it's not solely psychological it is there are carnal pleasures there is uh the ability to hold space for transformation and healing there is a lot going on within within bdsm that you know um doesn't exclude normal sexual pleasure but uh includes a lot other a lot of other types of sensations and possibilities mm -hmm. so so transformational domination is actually a term um, coined by one of my colleagues and a former pro dom and the intention of transformational domination is to um, have an intention for a scene okay so so for example if um if a client is looking for a way to maybe gain clarity about why he's into bdsm what i provide in transformational domination is a space to to not know and to not um to not even think mm -hmm. and to be vulnerable but to hold that intention and and create space for clarity to come mm -hmm. and a lot of times like some of the activities that that we engage in have um, like psychosomatic effects. Like for for example, bondage with rope is, you know, you're you're winding rope around somebody and holding them in some sort of position, mm -hmm. um, which allows them to relax into that position. And the engagement of the rope being this kind of like extension of my intention of like holding somebody in a specific space. Mm -hmm. Um, and position allows them to kind of like clear their minds too. Like they're not thinking, oh, what's going to happen next? What if yeah. this happens? You know, like yeah. they, they're allowed to just like stop thinking. And it's also very meditative. And so there's a lot of specific kink activities that can lead to this space mm -hmm. of, of just kind of like no thinking, like mental activity kind of like slows down and, and there's a, there's a meditative quality. Mm -hmm. And so I find that um, implementing these specific kinds of activities within a kink space uh, while holding that intention allows the person to to have kind of like enough um, mental like rest to allow for transformation to happen. One area of transformational domination is reaching that like kind of meditative mental space. There are, are people who are more you know, inclined to receive pain. And that can also bring somebody to that meditative space, mm -hmm. which is uh, often called subspace, where it's like their brain is fighting back, but there's nothing that they can do. So they just kind of have to like, stop thinking, stop yeah. fighting. Yeah. <laughs> and vulnerabilities is, is kind of like an overarching theme to all of this. Mm -hmm. But another area of vulnerability and that allows for transformation is say something like um, cross-dressing or um, forced feminization. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, like these activities can be can be done in many ways, like they can be humiliating, or they can be um, educational. Yeah. Um, 
but also again they can be meditative um, and of course they can be all you know all the things but in in the in the way of like creating a meditative space like if you are say playing with a um a cis hetero man um and and they have this desire to to like not be a cis hetero man because mm-hmm. you know in our society like there is kind of this very specific gender role of what a cis hetero man should perform yes 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 and and if you're not these things as a cis hetero man then you're going to be called a wimp or a sissy or a beta or whatever right. you know like you're going to be looked down upon by your peers yeah that you're and, not the stereotypical masculine kind of right yeah gender and role. that that can be very alienating if you don't feel like that all the time you mm-hmm. know and so as a cis hetero man if you are looking for an experience where you don't have to be this like you know, man that fits inside a man box. Right. You want to be soft. You want to be weak. You want to be a mess. You want to be, you know, more vulnerable. Um, Sometimes, like, cross-dressing or forced feminization can help um, bridge that kind of, like, feeling into a more embodied and more expressive way of of being of being that and so that's another way of of the the more transformational aspect of kind of like letting the things that are being done to you affect your mental state yeah oh my god it it actually it's that's a beautiful thing that you can provide to somebody who is that confused i think that um the stereotypes in the outside world can really lead people who don't fall into specific boxes of cultural norms to really feel um misunderstood and very alone yeah Yeah. very very alone and and almost like sometimes you know some people come to me and they're brand new at this and it's like I've always wanted to wear stockings and Mm -hmm. panties and and I've never been able to and I judge myself all the time and I think there's something wrong with me but after you know seeing the way that you um, facilitate this and and are so proud of me for looking so great in panties and stockings. <laughs> it makes me feel like 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 so relieved and so free, you know, yeah. like liberated. Yeah, and that is so moving to me. Like I I live for that. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> How do you set boundaries with your clients? Boundaries between work and like your actual life outside of work could maybe get blurred if your clients become overly attached to you. So it's like, how do you set boundaries when it comes to like intimacy and contact with your clients? That's a really good question. Um, And and one that I think um, varies depending on what specific kind of sex work you do, Mm -hmm. as well as as just who, like what kind of dom you are as well. So so I can only, you know, speak for myself, of course. but as a dominant, like as a professional dominant, mm-hmm. there's already a, a sort of expectation that is uh, inherent in, in my role. So of course, like as a dominant, you know, like most of the people that come to most of the people that come to me have this expectation that I am calling all the shots, you know, that I am um, in charge and in control of yeah. the scene. Um, which is great. Like I don't have to do too much, Mm -hmm. but there are definitely clients who come to me and see me as just uh, a person who's providing a service. And so the idea of being a dominant only exists within the time that we are physically together for Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And, and that can be, of course, like, you know, um, the scene itself where I'm playing the role of the dominant, but they're not acknowledging necessarily that I am also a dominant through the email and I am also a dominant after the scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I might be a softer dominant, you know, I might not be so, like, demanding and stern right. um, out, outside of the scene, but, like, there is, there, there is always going to be um, the boundary of that they're not allowed to touch me unless I say that they can touch me. 
Um, and if they do touch me, like I have one client who was actually, um, you know, audacious enough to pat me on the butt. <laughs> um, and, and so I addressed that very, very um, clearly. I yeah. said, oh, you just, you just patted me on the butt. What makes you think that's okay? And, and I think his answer was just like, oh, it, it seemed okay, or I couldn't help it, or something like that. And so, you know, this, is, this was outside of the scene. Yeah. And so I, you know, transitioning into the scene, I said, okay, well, we're going to address this in our scene because, um, because that is actually very entitled of you to think that it's okay. Mm-hmm. And entitlement is a huge problem when it comes to um, a female providing a service <clears throat> based, a, a sex-based or a body-based service to a cis-hetero male. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be a generalization that I use through and through. I know not all men are like that, <laughs> but <laughs> let's just say that many of them are. Yeah. So that's what we're focusing on. Um, <clears throat> and of course, like through, you know, into the scene, I, I said, well, you know, we're addressing this issue of like you patting me on the butt. Like, do you, do you do this with waitresses? Do you do this with other people? Um, just because I'm wearing, um, <clears throat> something like skin tight does that mean that you know that you that i'm inviting your touch onto my Mm -hmm. butt and so i kind of like like break (laughs) it apart a little bit for them and then i say okay so so you know now that you've learned your lesson i'm going to enforce this lesson and you are going to receive pain from it today so um so that's how one of the ways that um, a clear boundary is mm-hmm. set and then enforced with a kink appeal to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, otherwise, you know, like like these boundaries are um, are oftentimes having to be communicated through email. You know, mm-hmm. like you will address me as um, goddess Dia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do not. You know, I don't respond to hey. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then anything that has to do with intimacy and touch and consent is also clearly addressed from the very beginning. Okay. Um, you know, there will be no like unwanted touch of my body. There is no penetration of my body. Um, right now during coronavirus, I will not spit in your mouth, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. <laughs> You're, I will not be um, responsible for any sickness you may have. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, when you when you first walk in the door, you will wash your hands, and I will take your temperature. You know, like yeah. <laughs> uh, during these very specific times, um, everything is spoken up front as much as possible. There are no assumptions that anybody knows my boundaries, or um, there are no assumptions. Yeah. And so as a as a dominant, it's my responsibility to kind of like be very forthcoming with everything that is a boundary um, that that isn't clear. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that's so important. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Because assumptions can really get people in trouble, you know, and and of course you have to allow people to make mistakes in some ways, but some mistakes, of course, are uh, more life threatening than others. Mm-hmm. So so these these kind of boundaries that can um, prevent these kind of mistakes that are that could be life threatening or health threatening are always the most imperative yeah. and important to state forthright. One hundred percent. One of the main reasons that I wanted to speak to you, and I told you this in a pre-recording, is that you are also a fellow Asian, and yes. um, when we, you know, we were raised on these traditional gender roles of being very catering and submissive to men. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like this made your journey into being a pro-dom more difficult, and what was your family's reception to what you do? Um. I would I would have to agree that generally um, Asians, especially East Asians, mm-hmm. have have this cultural norm of of the women, you know, kind of like being perceived yeah. as subservient mm-hmm. and and um, the pleasers. Yeah. Uh, whether whether that is the perception of um, of of people from America. Mm-hmm. Um. That's that's kind of like my understanding is that more 
more so it's almost like a, a fetishized sexualization of Asian women. Yeah. Um, but, but being raised Asian, yeah. So that's, that's something that's projected onto us, I think, by Westerners. Um, but as an Asian growing up in an Asian household with, you know, specific to my family, um, the, the women were the, uh, the breadwinners. Mm-hmm. The women were the, the backbone like my family was matriarchal and my grandmother was, you know, the grand matriarch. Yeah. She was um, like the boss. She was the boss. Mm-hmm. She was the glue that, that held everybody together. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she was the one that kind of provided like everything for the family. So I have, um, I'm an only child. I have one mother, of course I have one mother. Um, <laughs> and I have <laughs> three aunts. Yeah. Um, so, so of course, you know, like my grandmother and and her four women daughters, her mm-hmm. four daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so growing up, like I really, I was more tuned into how all the women ran the homes. Yeah. Um, and how how all the men were just kind of like, Chilling. like they were husband. <laughs> yeah, they were. I mean, they they had their jobs, but it was always the women that were in control. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not default to the men as like, what do we do? There are things that made this this journey like actually a lot easier is because I didn't have any oppressive like man telling me I couldn't do this. There was no like like father like ill father figure mm-hmm. taking up space in my head or any any like oppressive forces being like you need to you know you need to stay in your lane or as a, as as an Asian lady or whatever. Right. Um, so that made things very easy. But what did make things kind of challenging for me was growing up without a father and not really knowing how to interact with men. Mm. So um, that was, you know, I think a lot of people will call that daddy issues, but I'm not going to call it daddy issues. Um, I'm going to say that there was a void mm-hmm. in under, understanding the uh, the role of men in my life mm-hmm. and and like what a positive you know like male role model looked like and mm-hmm. then what an abusive male would look like right. so there was a total void and so what I went was what I did was like usually as a new client came in I was learning I was collecting data mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> as I was working at the dungeon um at the commercial dungeon that I found on Craigslist the, the whole seven years that I was there, it was like data collection. It was like research, field yeah. research. <laughs> um, that was intriguing, but, you know, also very fascinating. Also, like, exactly where I wanted to be because, you know, of this void in my life of, like, you know, not understanding men. Um, so I got to understand men on a very sexual and kind of, like, vulnerable space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my family, you know... My whole family doesn't know what I do. Okay. Parts of my family know what I do. Um, my mom knows what I do. And one of my cousins know knows what I do. Yeah. Um, but not to the extent that I do it, you know. Like, yeah. They don't know every little nasty detail <laughs> that, that goes on. And and you know, with when you talk to when you talk to people of different generations, you kinda have to like be more selective in how you yeah, communicate. One hundred percent. A little bit of a censorship right. going on. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Absolutely. But so, your mom was completely understanding, and she had a positive reception to it. Yes, and and I, you know, I was really careful um, in how this was communicated to her. My decision to tell her was based in. Uh, like appealing to her highest values, which mm-hmm. are financial security and safety. Mm-hmm. And because that is um, a lot of times what Asian families care about. Like right. they, don't, they don't care about if you're happy or if you're in mm-hmm. love. They just want you to be secure financially and safe. And safe. <laughs> yes. Right. <Yeah. laughs> so, 
you know, that's that's what I started the conversation mm-hmm. with. You know, like I, you know, I want to tell you something about what I've been doing. This is this is what's making me money. This is what's been giving me the ability to have my own apartment, yeah, and to to make my own hours and yeah. to feel very very safe, yeah. Um, but here's what I do, and and after that conversation was over, my mom was like, "Cool, wow." How do I- how how do I get into this? You oh know, my, my mom god! Yes, mom. <laughs> I kind of sold it to her. <laughs> um, I told her, you know, some people are are into certain things that other people don't understand, mm-hmm. and so I provide a safe space for these people that are into these things to to explore them and yeah. to engage with them. Um, so one of the things that I explained to her, which was I think you know very easy to understand more or less was the foot fetish thing mm-hmm. and and I think foot fetishes have become a lot more common in um the mainstream mm-hmm. in, in in mainstream culture it's, yeah. it's not so gross anymore right like if you don't if you don't have a foot fetish then don't do it you know yeah but like if, if other people have a foot fetish don't yuck they're young right right <clears throat> so um I explained that to her and and um you know, this is this was kind of like when she came to stay with me for a week, and after the week was over and she left, um, I found this little envelope of money that she'd given me, mm-hmm. and and it said, you know, this is you know equivalent to about one hour of you putting your foot in somebody's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that is so cute! It's so cute. She is like, so sweet. Oh my God. (laughs) She got it. And I think, you know, it's so important for us to be able to approach and talk about topics like BDSM and kink. Yeah. Like with that kind of attitude, with the utmost respect and like a well-rounded attitude and attitude of openness. So I just wanted to ask you, like, how can we begin to normalize fetishes and taboos? Or should we not? You know, like, do you think that the appeal of it is because it is not normalized? Um... Well, I think that the appeal of it is that it happens in private. Okay. And it's it's a very intimate act. Mm-hmm. And and some people of course want to keep that secret and mm-hmm. that's cool. You know, they can keep that secret, but the normalization of these intimate private acts that happen between consenting adults, I think is actually very important because because they take place you know, obviously between consenting adults and sometimes the consenting adults are fetish providers. Mm -hmm. And, and so fetish providers fall under this category of sex work. Um, whether, you know, we are using our bodies to provide this sexual fetish, um, or this sexual service or not, Mm -hmm. uh, is up to us. Usually we are using our bodies in some way. Um, but it's something that is heavily stigmatized in in our society, mm-hmm. um, and and so sex work being stigmatized um, also stigmatizes the people who um, who support and yeah. utilize this service. Yeah, and, and so that is very harmful to to not just the the, the providers. But also the people who who use this this service, who mm-hmm. um, who utilize this service, because it creates shame, it creates a sense of non belonging. You right. know, like you're not you're not normal. Like right. you, you don't you don't belong here. You're not allowed to exist. You know, you need to keep that like to yourself or whatever and cool like some people do keep it to themselves they're not going out there like wearing t-shirts that say like put your foot in my mouth you know <laughs> um but but the people who do want to live <clears throat> more openly you know like there's all kinds of people out there that are that have different degrees of kinkiness right and some of us some of us want to uh be able to engage with these kinks um, in a way that, of course, isn't endangering anybody in the public that is non-consenting, um, mm-hmm. i.e. children. But they want to be able to also not feel shame if, you know, there's if there's a conversation going on about this kink 
um, and to be able to like talk about it openly. Right. Which, which I don't think endangers anybody if we're just having conversations. Right. Right. Um, and, and so a lot, a lot of times, like, you know, there is that feeling of shame and, and stigma around these conversations because there are so many other people that are yucking their young, you right. know, and they're, and, and that, that, that mentality, that consciousness that is so narrow and, and only allowing for like normal stuff to happen in life, um, brings about a toxicity that uh oppresses the other people right and and so that kind of oppression is seen in you know manifests in a lot of different ways um that kind of oppression or let's say like that kind of oppression by certain uh entities of like say politics right um can create laws that don't allow people like me to mm-hmm. talk openly online about alternative sexuality. Right. So so that leads to things like this bill called um, FOSTA-SESTA being passed. Which is? Guys. Um, so FOSTA-SESTA is a Franken bill that was created by both um, the Senate and the House. Um, and it is under the guise of uh, FOSTA meaning fight online sex trafficking uh-huh. and then SESTA meaning stop enabling sex trafficking. So like I'm not a sex trafficker and right. I was not trafficked. Right. I'm, I'm a sex worker, but other people who, you know, don't want me to exist will convolute my occupation with sex trafficking. So obviously we don't want sex trafficking to happen but right. there is a whole other set of sex workers that are not trafficked and right. we are consensual sex workers. Right. And people want to silence us and uh, kind of get rid of us. Um, they just don't want us to exist online. Right. They, don't, they don't want us to live our lives in a way where we can like, you know, find community online. Right. And so again, you know, I know that this is a very, very like long winded tangential um, <laughs> okay. uh, journey into this problem. Or, um, but it's it's very important to be able to, and and I think that all of this centers around shame. Like the people that don't want sex workers, consensual sex workers, to be able to 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 build community and to talk about our work online, are the same people that feel shame about their own sexuality, mm-hmm. um, or or feel like other people should be ashamed of their own deviant sexualities, quote unquote. Yeah. So normalization and destigmatization are two areas that we we are pushing for, and also decriminalization of sex work mm-hmm. um, in the work that Lucy and I do through La Maison de Rouge. Let's let's talk a little bit more about how we as listeners can take these actionable steps into helping you guys complete your mission. Well, um, I think it's it's maybe a mission that may never be complete. Yeah. <laughs> But we are trying to basically just kind of open the dialogue Mm -hmm. about alternative sexuality. So we all know, you know, like what normal sexuality is, like heterosexuality, like, you know, man and woman, penis and vagina, you know, Mm -hmm. like whatever. Cool. Like that, that exists. We all know about it. Hollywood, you know, knows about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every, you know, that is kind of the norm. Anything outside of that, um is not the norm yeah so so we'll call that alternative and and that of course includes not just things that happen between men and women but um things that happen sexually between queer uh trans non-binary people Mm -hmm. people who are gender fluid you know like the whole spectrum um of alternatives sexuality also includes people who are not heteronormative or cis, which I think is also important to include. So, so you know, like these areas of our lives that we ha- are often shamed about um, are areas of power. Like if you can own your own sexuality, you're owning a part of yourself that a lot of other people would find shameful. Yeah. 
you're getting to decide how this thing happens mm -hmm. and who it happens with and whether you want it to happen at all or not right you know like just by by owning this part of yourself and and so that is why we created a platform space um, on Twitter Live, also known as Periscope, mm -hmm. for people to just talk about it. You know, yeah. we're not we're not engaging physically in these demos. We're not creating any scenes where this is happening live. We are just talking about it. Yeah. And the more the more you're exposed to as a person, like having these conversations and hearing these conversations happen, it opens up so much more possibilities to to uh, own these things about yourself mm -hmm. and to, to talk about it with other people and to not feel alone. Yeah. So that is, I feel like, how we normalize things. Yeah. You mentioned legalization of sex work. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, and, and just to back up for a second, um, I talked about decriminalization, mm -hmm. which is different okay. than... Yes. Different than... Um, legalization yeah so the difference between legalization and decriminalization is that with legalization um, the the government is regulating every component of what's legal mm -hmm. so if sex work were legal the government would be all up in sex workers business they would yeah. be licensing they would be inspecting they would be certifying there would be fees there would be you know like all this kind of like bureaucracy around who sex workers are, what they can do, you know, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. So the government would be all up in our shit. We don't want that. Yeah. Decriminalization, on the other hand, is when what we do as sex workers is not a criminal offense. We don't want the government regulating everything that we do. We, w we just want to be able to make money um, and, and, you know, not be criminalized for right. making money. Right. And the reason that decriminalization is important is because criminalizing sex work makes it so that sex workers are doing something illegal just by making money. And it's especially dangerous for street-based survival sex workers. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it's so dangerous for them um, and I'm not saying it's not dangerous for other types of sex workers, but especially for them is because they're putting themselves out there in a way that makes them very vulnerable. So yeah. street-based sex workers are often working the streets, literally. Yeah. And a lot of times when they are targeted by people that want to do violence to them, um, there is no recourse. So if a street-based sex worker, or if any sex worker really, gets assaulted, gets raped, gets robbed, gets, you know, murdered, they can't go to the cops because what they're doing inherently uh, while they were being assaulted or brutalized or whatever is illegal. So they have no, like, standing in, yeah. in, in their just, like, existence. And so a lot of times what happens, um, not only is there no recourse, but a lot of cops will even, like, you know, brutalize yeah. or rape the sex worker too. And yeah, and I know that that's, yeah, it makes shit worse. And, and so that's, you know, we're just fighting for our livelihoods and our choice to make money the way that we want to make money. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, you know, I don't think that decriminalization would hurt anybody. It would definitely be a harm reduction for many, many people though. Yeah, because it would make it so there is at least some level of protection when you when you do go to the cops and the authorities totally yeah totally. and and that's another reason you know like uh talking about um normalizing fetishes and and sex work um in a positive way is is also harm reduction because like we all know the whole like dead hooker joke like unfortunately you know that joke the, the idea of dead hookers is so popular is because so many people kill prostitutes and and it's become normalized. Like, that's one thing that shouldn't be normalized. No, not at is, all. Right. Brutality or violence or rape of any one set of people that are already marginalized. Right. Of like, anybody. let's not, let's unnormalize that. Yeah. 
that's this is astonishing and it's like it's eye-opening to to even hear about these things because we don't we don't know this as somebody who is not you know what i mean we i like i would have had no idea that this is the struggle yeah oh my god are there petitions that we can sign or like is there anything that like you know we can do there are organizations that are more or less grassroots out there and they all revolve around decriminalizing sex work Mm -hmm. um so sex workers outreach project swop um is an organization and and we are you know like often fighting for human rights, mm-hmm. um, decriminalization, and and so on and so forth. And there's uh, chapters in like most major cities. Okay. So so that's another um, that's another organization that you can that you can follow, and you know there's always something that you can do like donating or mm-hmm. whatever. So that's swopusa.org. Before we wrap the show. We do a segment every week. It's called Weekly Weakness, and it's all about your favorite thing of the moment. It could be a book, a TV show, anything at all. What is yours? Oh, um, my weekly weakness is peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, <laughs> but not like during the normal hours of eating, yeah. usually around, you know, 11 p.m. <laughs> Like a bedtime snack. <laughs> yeah, but it's like it's, uh, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is like very high in protein and mm-hmm. carbs. And so it's meant to give you energy. Yeah, It's meant to fill you up and kind of like increase your your endurance in whatever yeah. you're doing, like like working in working in the field or, yeah. or rowing a boat or whatever, you yeah. know. But I'm just like eating this and then going to bed. Yeah. <laughs> the best time to eat anything honestly is right before bed <laughs> yeah and it's it's my indulgence tell our listeners where they can find you and la maison de Rue. yes absolutely so my name is domina dia dynasty and on twitter i am domina dynasty okay. um on instagram i am dia underscore underscore dynasty and then my website is dominadynasty.com. La Maison de Rouge is uh, Lucy Sweetkill and I, our, mm-hmm. our, like, let's say our lifestyle brand, our education brand. Um, and that is L-A-M-A-I-S-O-N-D-U-R-O-U-G-E. It means the House of Red in French. So La Maison de Rouge exists as lamaisonderouge.com and across all platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Periscope, mm-hmm. um, La Maison de Rouge. I love it. Thank you so much, Dia, for coming on and talking to me. This was like... I, I was looking forward to this conversation, you know, since we had our pre-recording meeting because I wanted to open up the dialogue in a way that is respectful of what this what this lifestyle is. And I never want to misrepresent a certain um, demographic or a certain, you know, lifestyle at all. And I, I have such an honor to just talk to you and have you on here to to talk about BDSM and kink and like letting us know how to take a step in normalizing these kinds of conversations. I really appreciate that you, you know, wanting to represent this lifestyle more faithfully mm-hmm. um, and taking the action of actually asking somebody who yeah. is in it rather than, than, than trying to figure it out yourself. And I think that that's always going to be the smarter thing is to have these conversations with people that, you know, that, that are in it yeah um so definitely appreciate the space that you've provided for for me to to talk and to ask all these really great questions too have a wonderful rest of your day i hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with dia dynasty this season i am really focused a lot more on new and interesting topics that i am curious about and i just want to share it with you guys i think that i wanted to break boundaries of like us versus them kind of situation where things that don't seem normal or can seem, you know, exotic to certain people. I want to be able to open up the dialogue and talk about it. 
so we are all you know more open-minded and we just know more about the world around us i think that's so important thank you guys so much for joining me this friday if you guys enjoyed this episode or any other previous episodes don't forget to give me five stars on um, itunes when you leave me a five star rating you can ask me any question you want and i will answer it can be just nothing like too crazy but yeah if you guys give me five stars ask me anything i will answer it on the show all right you guys have a wonderful weekend and i'll catch you guys next friday bye